Depending on who you ask, I am probably best known for a TED Talk I gave a few years ago called, We Don't Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It. When I was writing that talk and working with the team at TED, I was desperate to get across that there is more to grief than just death. If you've listened to Terrible Thanks for Asking for any amount of time, you know that at Feelings & Co., we believe that. We believe that grief is about all kinds of loss. We believe that we do not have a yardstick for suffering, some special scale to place our hurt on that will tell us whose is the worst. We say that if it's heavy for you, it's heavy. If it hurts you, it hurts. If it burns you, it's hot. I believe that grief and loss change us in many ways. Sometimes it closes us up. We wrap ourselves around our suffering like Gollum with his ring. Ours is the most precious, the precious, the shiniest. It is ours and ours alone. And sometimes loss and grief open us up. We can start to see loss in others. We can start to count the costs that they might not yet have tallied. That's why many people listen to our shows, to see themselves in stories they haven't lived yet, stories they might not ever live. And that's why I love to read. That's why I love to read nonfiction. I love to slip inside the life of another person, to see and experience through the eyes of another person. When I was writing my TED Talk, people I love were going through a divorce. Several people I love have since divorced. And the pain of divorce was different from the pain of widowhood, but it wasn't any lighter than the loss of my husband. I was watching the unwinding of lives that had braided together, not just last names and bank accounts, but inside jokes and emergency contacts and vacation plans, and retirement plans. I was watching people who had loved each other, who still, in many cases, had love for each other, go from being a couple, a partnership, a promise, to being a memory. And I wanted these people to know that I saw their grief, and I didn't think of it as any less real than mine. The lines I wrote about that ended up getting cut, so I try to say it as often and as loudly and as publicly as I can that it counts, your loss, your grief. Not every divorce is a cause for grief, I know. I've known people who ended their marriage with a celebration. I've known people who ended theirs with a handshake. I've met people whose divorce was the single greatest tragedy of their life so far, and people for whom divorce was nothing more than a footnote. Because like any loss, as universal as some elements may be, they are also as unique as the people living them. I'm Nora McInerney. This is The Terrible Reading Club, and today's book is about divorce. But before we can get into the book, the dog needs some treats. All right, what kind of a dog is this that we're talking about? She is a Catahoula leopard dog. Do you know about those? No, because you just made them up. <laughs> it is a little bit of a unicorn. She has blue eyes, 
and oh wow, like white and pink and brown spots. It's Louisiana. That if you drew a dog, I would just draw that dog. Yeah, no, people send me She's drawings. Dog. People from That's Instagram a dog. Yeah. send me drawings of her. Yeah. Yeah, that's a dog. I have a Shih Tzu. Oh, she's on her she's on her last leg. Speaking of legs, oh. okay. Speaking of dogs, oh. that's today's author Elizabeth Crane. I picked up her book. This story will change the way I pick up many books, knowing nothing about its contents. Nothing. I will blindly pick up a book, judge it by its cover, and decide to read it. And it turns out this book is a memoir of divorce told in small scenes, some as short as just a sentence or two. Elizabeth's divorce was not her choice. She met her ex-husband when she was 40 and he was 13 years younger. Their relationship lasted 15 years. And the book is not a cataloging of all his faults, but to me, a pretty honest exploration of the life and death of a relationship. And once her dog has treats, it's time for us to talk. I loved your book. I love the title. I love that the promise of the story is also the promise of of life, which is that it will change. It will change. And I wanted to start our conversation talking about before marriage, what was the story of Elizabeth Crane? Who was I before this marriage? You know, I was 40 when we met and we got married in a year after that. And I think my ideas about marriage and what that was and what I wanted from it had evolved so wildly from what I thought it was supposed to be when I was a kid or even when I was in my 20s you know, on my way to becoming an adult who functioned in the world. By the time that he and I met, I had like really begun to have a full life. Like I was writing, I was teaching, um, I quit drinking. So things were working much more successfully than they had been. So you meet the man who will be your husband when you are 40. Who are you at 40? I was in a good place then. Like I had made the life that I wanted to make minus a relationship, really. Regardless of what my marriage would look like, I certainly knew I didn't want it to look like my parents' marriage. Me, my mom, and my stepdad was like, no, 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 it's way too much yelling. I always knew that I was going to wait for someone that I felt like I had a better shot with, you know, (laughs) that I was never going to get married just to get married or even be in a relationship. That's so interesting to me because it's very different from <laughs> me. I, uh, my parents were married till the day my dad died. I always thought, oh yeah, I'll get married and I'll get married probably at or around the age my parents were when they got married, which is early twenties. And yeah. I got my first boyfriend and I thought, well, I'll never need another. I got one boy to like me. <laughs> Let's hold on to this one. And to me, marriage was like this. It just felt cozy and safe. I liked that my parents read in bed together at night. I liked that they didn't take vacations together ever. My dad went on his trips with his friends to golf, and my mom would get us all in a van and drive us to the Ozarks. But see, this is just proof that marriage can be like it's up to the two people. Yeah. 
it's really what, however you design it. There are lots of things people do within marriages and like, oh, you got a boyfriend outside. That's great for you. I can only handle the emotional experience of one person at a time. So marriage to you is not a end all be all. It's not even necessarily a goal when you're in your 20s and 30s. It wasn't really except it's challenging when you see everyone else doing it and you're not doing it for whether it's random that you don't meet people, which is kind of what I think, um, or, you know, you're not settling or whatever the reasons are, you know, I was lonely. I wanted to partner, but yeah, I was never going to do it just because it's what you do. And, you know, I like people tell you what they think about that. Oh yeah. What do people tell you? (laughs) Well, it depends. If they're in my family, they might say, what's wrong with you? You know, I have kind of like step family and this and that and whatever. And it really, like when I say my family, I really mostly mean my mom, (laughs) but then she's also dead. The story that I always tell is like, I broke up with someone years and years ago and I was devastated. You know, I really like this guy. And And the first question she asked me was, what do you think you did wrong? Not even why do you think it didn't work, but what did you do wrong? So for your mom, getting married for you would have been an accomplishment. I think it would have been an accomplishment. And I think it diminished. I mean, I basically wrote a whole book about this too, but she was incredibly ambitious. She was successful at what she did, but she was sort of straddling these generations of like, she was, you know, not quite like, hippie generation. You know, she and my dad got married in the late fifties. She was, and she was 20 years old, you know, and she grew up in Iowa. That's what you did. And she wanted to be a star. And that was a huge conflict for her. The understanding that we still have a lot of these same issues today, but my generation is fully on the other side of that. You know, like that women are, are now we are supposed to do it all. You know, she kind of was of two minds, like you should be married and you should have a family and you should have a successful career. And if you don't have all of those components, it's obviously, you're obviously doing something wrong, you know? Yeah. And there's something wrong with you. There is something though, to that generational divide Things change and they don't change. And some parts of our culture shift while others don't. You know, when Facebook first became available for everybody, and there are these posts that would make the rounds like 10 or 15 years ago that like still do now, where it's like two old people on a porch and they're like, in my day, we fixed things. We didn't get rid of them. And it's like, well, in your day, or in this case, your mother's day, a woman couldn't have a checking account. So your options were limited and marriage was safety and marriage was financial security or marriage was a way to survive in the world. And yes, also for a lot of people, love, but you had options that your mom didn't. When you meet the man who will become your husband up until that point, how would you have told your story? A way that I had described myself then and to some extent still do is that I'm a slow learner. I will 
make the same mistake a number of times before I learn. I'm a slow learner in culture and life, but I'm also kind of a slow learner just in my personal experience. I was so single and I, I dated a fair amount, but I was someone who could see red flags or in my early 30s, I was dating someone. I liked him a lot. I, you know, we were dating for a couple of months. I was on my way to a date. It's like my friends would always get signs, things that were, you know, like whatever kind of signs from the universe. And I'm like, I don't get signs. But I was walking up 86th Street, I still remember, and there was a, there was a road repair sign. And it was very low to the ground, so it looked super, extra huge. And it said, rough road ahead. And I was on my way to this date with this guy. And it was challenging few months that we spent together. And we didn't even live in the same city. And there were just red flags up the wazoo. I always saw the red flags. I always ignored the red flags. I'm just like, okay, maybe this won't work out, but I'm gonna have fun on the ride, you know? Sometimes a red flag looks more just like jaunty decor. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, mistakes were made. It was several years before Ben when I made the last of one of those mistakes that I was just like, I'm done. I'm waiting for the one, whatever that means, you know, or a one, but like the a one. So when you meet the husband, what about the husband says to you at the time? Yeah, let's do this. So this is what it felt like. There were a couple of potential red flags that I write about in the book that I made note of, right? You know, he was 13, 13 and a half years younger than me. I haven't forgotten what it meant to be 27 and what I had learned in that meantime. And so in terms of things changing, I'm like, it's like, no matter how much in love with me this guy is, which I knew he was, I don't know that he's going to feel this way in 10 years when I don't have the same face or whatever, mm. you know? It was very easy with him. He showed up. You know, we had things in common. So that's, we shared values for the most part, I think. Um, we had mutual friends and a, a sort of foundational principles of life that we could use to move through things. But basically it was really easy. I never worried that he would call. I never obsessed about when should I call. Like all that obsessive stuff like went away. And I was just like, I like this guy. He just like shows up. And he calls, like before I even have thought, like, is he going to call or am I going to call? Blah, 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 you know, and it was surprisingly easy. It was like what my theoretical idea of what a relationship should be like, because I had ideas. You know, honestly, aside like the age difference, I married, I'm two for two marrying guys who are three to four years older than me and who were also so easy never never wondered never worried and 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 definitely helps to have one come along where it's not like that to point out that it shouldn't be like that right it, like you can look back and say like why did i why why was i thinking that that guy would come around when it was so obvious that he wasn't going to come around like this guy loves me you know and I didn't doubt that all the way, I never doubted that all the way through our marriage, you know.
What did it mean for you to be married, for you to enter this marriage? It was something that I constantly was thinking about, <laughs> like uh, like from the time that we sort of got engaged, and then at least in the earlier part of our marriage, I became much more interested in what marriage was and what I wanted it to be. And I still kind of spend a lot of time wondering what other people's relationships are like, but beyond the sense of like anything that you could tell me about yours, like I know that I'll only know so much about your relationship unless I suddenly I'm like inside your brain or both of your brains. Maybe you can get a closer glimpse if you're in someone's house with them and you see how they move around and how they interact with each other, share space. We used to joke that we were like winning marriage because we thought we were so like communicative and we were reasonable with each other. And I think those things are important. I would do a lot of the same things again if I ever got married again, which I'm not going to. I certainly always thought that the way that I was doing it was probably less traditional than most, even though it had some very kind of ultimately traditional kind of looking components, you know? What were the parts that weren't traditional and what were the parts that were? I don't cook. These were known things before we went into this. And I'm an artist, you know? I live a a lifestyle that's like, you know, nine days out of 10, it's it seems really ordinary. I do all like, you know, I pull weeds. I watch a lot of TV. I have pockets where it feels very extraordinary. And I'm on a book tour or, you know, I get to make a movie. My teaching job is, you know, something that it's just like I couldn't have designed a job that was cooler if I had tried. I teach in a low residency MFA program. So I get to go to Palm Springs twice a year for 10 days, stay in a resort and teach people how to write. It's non-traditional. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you have this life where it's not going to be a nine to five. It might be a nothing to nothing (laughs) some days, and it might be a nine to nine. Exactly. And by that, I mean a 24-hour cycle where everything's important and everything matters and you're in the zone and it's got to all happen now. And please don't talk to me. (laughs) Don't open this door. But my mom's life was like that too. I would never argue that she balanced it well, but the difference between us was that she'd be off singing an opera somewhere, but she would also making dinner, bringing her husband a cocktail at the door, pleasing him however she was going to please him. Like Those things were really important to her. You had such an interesting insight into different marriages. And I always think about that actually with kids of divorce too. We have a blended family and I think all the time about how it's very rare to see a marriage come together for kids, right? It's probably more common now than it was, you know, 50 or 40, even 20 years ago. But in my circle of friends, I didn't know anyone with divorced parents, def- certainly not remarried parents. The idea of seeing my parents date is just ugh, gross. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine that as a child, right? So I'm trying to forget those years. I was little the things that you are doing as a parent are informing your kid's view of life, of life with another person, of what building a relationship with someone is, about what building like a home life with someone is. You said this thing about how even if I told you everything about my marriage, you wouldn't know what it was like unless you were like 
brain <laughs> melded into my body. And I remember my dad saying something to the effect of nobody knows about a relationship except the people who are in it. It's so true. It's so true. Which is probably why I'm sitting here five years later still trying to figure out what happened. The most common question after someone loses their husband to death is, how did he die? The most common question I imagine when you get a divorce is what happened? And the crux of both of those questions, and and I don't say this ungenerously, I say this with understanding, is how can I make sure it doesn't happen to me? That would be where I was coming from. In our case, like there were things going wrong, but people thought we were really solid. The question, what happened, was not apparent to most people that asked, you know, because it was so sudden and we were not in a terrible place. You know, we were in a 15-year place. She started to make the bed wrong. Maybe she always had. It bothered him now. The fitted sheet always came up at the top. I can't reach down there any better, she said. Just try, he said. I am trying, she said. The other subtext between those questions or any question about, you know, what happened is really, like, whose fault is it? Oh, yeah. And there are things that you write about. Obviously, there was... Infidelity, right? Wouldn't you count that as emotional? Emotional. Right? Yeah. yeah. It feels only like marginally better that parts didn't go into other parts. Let's put it that way. I will say right now, for the record, and I've said this to Matthew, who I am married to, wouldn't love if you cheated on me physically. If you told another woman your feelings, your thoughts, I cannot think of anything that would hurt me more. I really can't. No, that's exactly right. And I think that is what was happening, you know? And also she was cooking for him. In our most human form, right? When we're trying to sort of like count up and like weigh and measure what happened, whose fault is it? Like you could leave it there, but I really do think that the effectiveness of your book is in the exploration beyond just that. And in truly trying to find the answer to what happened. It's interesting. You know, you listen to people who go through breakups. There were a lot of people splitting up around the same time I did. Some were a little ahead of me. Some were a little behind me. More than a couple of them were sort of like very clear, like the guy did this. I'm done. End of story. There's no question that my ex made the choice for us, essentially, to end the marriage, largely because he saw this shiny object, right? But it's never going to be that simple for me. And furthermore, I am a person who one of my guiding things is accountability. It's really important to me, like, even if I had done all this soul searching and come up with nothing, no, it really was his fault. At least I would know that I looked at my side of the street, you know? And in looking at my side of the street, I hope that a good bit of this is in the book. There are like things that I did not communicate well to him and things that I said that were okay, that maybe were okay, but were maybe shouldn't have been okay. You know, it's just like 
those kind of day-to-day things that kind of accumulate. And this is where you get into the 15-year thing, right? You know, like saying, you know, like with a certain tone or showing up late to the airport. Those are not reasons to end a marriage, but they are things to sort of try to continue to have a conversation about. And instead, I would just stand and do this Al-Anon sort of thing where I'd be like, all right, this is about him and it's not about me. I can't change him. I need you to know that I loved him. I need you to know why I loved him. I need you to know all of the reasons I loved him. I need me to know why I loved him. I need you to know that I stayed for 15 years for a reason. I need to know that there is a reason. I need to know what the reason is. I need to show you all the beautiful moments. I don't want to bore you with happy tales. I don't want to create unhappy tales. I don't want to only tell sad tales. I don't want to make him into a bad guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want there to be any bad guy. I can't change him, so maybe I don't say anything, or maybe I say the wrong thing, or maybe I explode (laughs) at, like, something completely unrelated, and then other things go unsaid. And it's the easiest thing in the world to sort of Monday morning quarterback something, (laughs) you know, and be like, what I should have done. Absolutely. Or do it to somebody else's marriage too. I want to talk about sort of the writing choices you made because I was just so taken with the structure of the book. And I wanted to know specifically, you choose to refer to yourself in the third person too. How quickly was that choice made when you started writing about it? I love to play with person and I come from fiction, only fiction prior to this certainly autobiographical to some extent. So I have had a long-standing habit of reworking entire stories, the shifting first, second, third, or third person plural, which is one of my favorite things to do. I started writing this, not knowing that it would turn into anything. I started writing this just months after he moved out, you know, and I was just like deep in that sadness and confusion if I write down my whole marriage, I'll figure out what happened. So it wasn't until like some of those pieces started to come out like, oh, this writing isn't terrible. I also feel like it gives a reader a sense of, I think, the chaos of grief, which is what you're experiencing in this case. And it is a huge loss. And when you're in it, it's like there are moments where you feel like you're in the eye of the tornado, but you can still see the gusts sort of picking up pieces of your life, like those cartoons where it's like a shoe, a bed, you know? And then and then there are moments where you're the one being spun, you know? And I love that in a book. I really do. I love a book that is not purely linear because we experience yeah, time same. linearly, but we don't revisit it that way at all. That's another thing that got shifted. It was never written chronologically anyway, but the pieces were moved around and moved around and moved around again. Is this story even true? It's meant to be true. Maybe this story is only as true as it feels to you. Does this story feel true to you? Then it's true. Tell me about starting the book where you started it. 
at the wedding and at a moment where I've never seen in real life, did somebody actually do this? Did the officiant say, you know, essentially they say, speak now, if you know a reason in movies, they do this. I've officiated, I think 20 weddings. I've never said this, but if you have a reason why these two shall not be wed, speak now or forever hold your peace. You know, my memory is so fuzzy. So I'm not sure if he asked us that or not. And the guy that married us was a friend of ours who's just a lovely, lovely person. But what I do remember is that he asked, if you support this marriage, I want to hear you all say yes, you know, and it was loud. And, you know, I knew that that day anyway, that people were very, very supportive of what we were doing. I think what's so powerful about it is just sort of looking at yourself and this other person in sort of a snow globe of memory and thinking, if someone would have said something. In my experience, when I give advice to my girlfriends about relationships and, and vice versa, when they've given it to me, it was like, do I listen? Do they listen? Never, never. Later, maybe, you know, later they'll say, yeah, you were right. Or, you know, I'll say you were right, but never. Somebody reached out to me recently in an email with, I mean, just a relationship thing that I was like, it's so dicey to give someone advice, even if they ask for it. And I said, like, I don't do this because I think you already know the answer. And right. also I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. And then I, I pressed return 40 what? times. And I was like, if you made it this far, <laughs> I'm assuming you're okay with what I'm about to oh, say so because funny. I want to give you the option of not reading this, but I did have to reply. And there's, and guess what? They never replied and they never do because they really did not want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. I think any relationship is an act of hope, right? I came from divorce. I have abandonment issues up the wazoo. And I knew that no matter how much in love we were on that day, that there was just no way of knowing in my soul of souls or whatever, how it would end up. It's this leap that we take. And even though we know statistically and the numbers change all the time and they really don't matter, right? Because you always think you're going to be the exception to anything. My husband was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma. The survival rate beyond five years is minuscule. And we're like, oh, well, we'll just be that person. My mom died of, I don't know what you call the kind of lung cancer she had, but she had like most of one of her lungs taken out. And she lasted a few years after that. There's never that like anticipation how, how persons like you see them, you can see them. She's like 40 pounds thinner and, you know, on a vent, like, like wheeling an oxygen tank behind her, you know, like that's my mom. And you're like, we'll make it, we'll make it. And for all the things that have changed since your mother's generation or even my mother's generation, divorce does have serious financial implications 
for everybody. Um, but also I believe women suffer the most financially after a divorce. And they're often happier also. There is a certain freedom, right? Like I live on a teacher salary now, you know, and Ben and I are not actually divorced. We co-own a house together. We haven't sold it. I live here. He's on my insurance. We have it all sort of sorted out, which is not to say that we won't get divorced, but, but we pay our own way, right? Separately now. And I'm on a teacher salary. You know, what I make from writing is very random, Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but I don't count on that. So it definitely feels more precarious than it did when there were two incomes in the house, for sure. What would your mom have said about you getting a divorce, especially at the age that you got a divorce? (laughs) You know, That's such a good question. I think so often about how robbed my mom and I were, right? Of like, because I was like just getting my shit together when she was diagnosed. If there were any improvements in our relationship in that time, which was bumpy, but like, but I think they came because I was really trying to let her be who she was and not have these expectations that she would understand me or whatever. So when I think about like hypothetical question like that, what if we had had more time and I was the person that I am now versus the person I was then, but I don't know who she would be now, you know, I think chances are she'd probably be pretty similar just because she may have had undiagnosed mental health issues. You know, even my changes would have kind of led her to be softer with me in that way. You know, and she was very loving, like, don't get me wrong. You know, she was very loving. She was not like a tough bitch or whatever. We had a lot of fun together, but I would tend to not tell her a lot of personal things because of that response that I told you earlier. One hopes that because she had been through divorce and, you know, that she would have leaned on the side of like, you know, I'm sorry that you're going through that. I know what it's like. I do want to talk about just sort of like our cultural attitude around divorce too, which is it's a failure, which you wrote about. You failed to meet the terms of your contract. (laughs) It is also, on the other hand, in, in my experience, it is sort of a grief that doesn't count to a lot of people, right? Oh, I mean, this is one of the things that I appreciate so much about your voice on grief in general is that you, that you seem to really understand that it isn't just limited to like loss of life, you know? And, you know, I went on this retreat that my friend had and there were a number of women there and it wasn't a grief retreat, but there were a number of women there who had very recently been through these profound losses. Young husbands. One woman lost two boys, her teenage sons, you know, in a car accident. Children. You know, I'm like babbling through this whole thing because I'm like newly separated and I'm listening to these women. Fuck's wrong with me, you know? When you hear these other losses that are so, you know, brutal, I would just be like, I feel like an idiot. 
And several of them said to me, what you're going through is grief. You know, I just felt so understood and loved and supported. And when I think about the loss of my mom, like that was such a significant loss because we were so tied up and my feelings about her were so complex. You know, I loved her and she made me nuts and she died. And with this person, like it was a different relationship. It was a marital relationship and he's still here. These feelings shouldn't be, these circumstances shouldn't be, but they are, they just are. So what is a good word to describe that experience of, of the loss of a marriage? Grief, it's grief. There's still so many ties between you and the now ex-husband. How do you navigate that? The writing of a thing that intersects with another person's life and experience and maintain even a strained relationship at times with them. That's a question that comes up a lot in in teaching, right? And I think that's a question that different people are going to answer differently, depending on many factors, right? Are you still in relationship with the person? Do you still care about the person? Like, I would never have wanted to write an expose, you know, or whatever. Like, here's my terrible husband by Betsy Crane. You know, I wanted the reader to know that I loved him and I didn't want to make things difficult for him. In this particular case, I let him read it and I wasn't like letting him read it to like sign off, you know, but it was important to me that like he knew what was going on. And, you know, even from just the beginning when we were sort of went to marriage counseling, I was like, you know, I'm going to write about this, right? <laughs> like that was before I, like things really went to hell and I wrote out of complete insanity, but he was like, oh yeah, I know. He could not have been cooler about it. I've been so, so lucky in that way. Like whatever kind of conflict we still have, that was not, that was not problematic. What do you tell your students about writing their stories when the people in their stories have their own versions and are still alive? Yeah, you know, there's there's a few things to do. The first thing I say is just write it. Just write it. You don't have to publish it. You know, that's a reasonable goal, but it's not the end-all be-all, and it certainly wasn't with this. I was well into it when I realized that it, it could be publishable. But I think particularly with personal stories, it can be really important to write it. Just write it. It it could be terrible, but just write it. And as you go back and craft it and all of that stuff, you know, then you can decide, okay, am I willing to take what goes along with putting this out into the world, including the people that are involved? You know, and also I think too, there's sort of like, if someone's writing about trauma in specifically about trauma, that's something that I wouldn't necessarily say like, yeah, jump right in. Like, do you have a therapist? Do you have, you know, support system? Like, are there ways for you to navigate taking care of yourself while you write this painful thing? Right. I care that these people are affected by this and I care about putting something on the page that's truthful but not like mean. The story will change and the story does change. How has this story changed you? 
Well, I felt really hopeless when my marriage ended right at the beginning. I'm a hopeful person. I like, I don't have rose colored glasses at all, but I'm, I like to say my glass is 51% full. I feel hopeful. But back then, summer of 2018, I was not sure that I was ever going to like experience my life in the same kind of way with that kind of attitude. And, you know, I still have a lot of feelings around the whole thing, you know, and thank God for my friends and my support system. You know, I called people all day, every day, like they made me laugh and they held my hand and, and a lot of it too, I think is about joy. I need to do the math of my marriage, and I need for it to add up to something that makes sense. Perhaps I need a ledger. I need for the good column to be longer than the bad. I need to see the marriage totals in front of me. I need for there to be accounting. I need to believe the people who tell me I didn't waste 15 years, that endings and failures aren't the same thing. Endings are not failures. They are sometimes just endings. And not every relationship is built to last a lifetime, and not every relationship can. There's a line in Elizabeth's book that I highlighted. She has just returned from that retreat that she talked about, and she writes this line. She's still in her grief when she leaves. She's still in her grief now. She doesn't go from sad to not sad. She just goes. We all just goes. The story changes, and the story changes us. We don't move on. We move forward. Slowly, painfully, we go. On and on and on, we go. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Reading Club. We are a production of Feelings & Co. This episode was produced with Megan Palmer, Claire McInerney, Marcel Malikibu, and Kara Nesvig. Feelings & Co. is an independent podcast production studio. You can find all of our work at feelingsand.co. 